and Joseph and Michael. Hello and welcome to a new episode of On Translation. Before we start, let me remind you that the website for our podcast is www.ontranslation.org. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. In this episode, we have an interview with a special guest, Rachel Cordasco, who is a translator of Italian science fiction into English. Rachel has a PhD in literary studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she currently works as a developmental editor at the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. She writes essays and reviews, and many of her reviews and translations have been featured in publications such as Future Science Fiction Digest and World Literature Today, among other publications. She's also the moderator of the websites, Science Fiction and Translation, which tracks all speculative fiction available in English. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for inviting me on. First, I would like to talk a little bit about yourself. Uh, maybe you can tell us how you became a translator, how you see translation fitting in with your academic background and your work as an editor. Is there any connection between being an editor and a translator? Well, I have always loved learning languages, and I went back and forth between going into language program or a literature program for graduate school, and I decided to take the literature track but continued learning languages. And I found that I wasn't going to be getting a job as an English professor as I thought I was, and so I went into publishing and I became a developmental editor, and that's basically a way to describe the person who takes the manuscript and goes through it line by line, editing, maybe reorganizing chapters, just kind of like a global edit, and, and shapes it into the final product. And that's made me more aware of other people's language, you know, how they use language and how they, the choices that they make. And while I was doing that, I was also building my website. And that came out of my, you know, my evening, not job, but, you know, my evening passion for tracking speculative fiction and translation. Um, that came out of my writing reviews and different things and keeping up on my reading. And while I was doing that, I realized that there wasn't much Italian SF in English. And I realized that it was, it's mostly because it's, it's hard to, there's not a lot of money behind it. And there aren't that many kind of resources for Italian authors to get their works into English. So I just connected with a couple of Italian authors and editors online through social media and I thought maybe I could try my hand at translating some short fiction to see how, how well my Italian stood up after uh, not having taken, taken any classes in it or used it for a couple of years. I enjoyed learning the language. So uh, with the use of dictionaries and kind of my memory coming back, I started translating it and found that I really enjoyed it. So I just kept on doing it. Before I get into speculative fiction and science fiction and translation, you talked a little bit about being a developmental editor. I think mm -hmm. most people might not be familiar with this term. So how is that different from copy editing? Is it focused not just on language, but on the conception and cohesion? Yeah. So, for instance, what, I, what I'm doing on the current book I'm working on is the author submitted the 
manuscript and and the director accepted it and gave it to me and said, you know, read it over and see what needs to be done. And I read it over and realized that it was it was almost like a like a puzzle. I kind of needed to take the chapters that that he had given us and move them around because chronologically it it didn't work very well. Are we talking about and, fiction or nonfiction? Books? Oh, I'm sorry. I only edit um, nonfiction about Wisconsin history. Okay. Yeah, that's what the press is. the press focuses just on Wisconsin history. So I then you know, contacted the author. I talked to him about reorganizing the chapters, kind of a major reorganization. He was very open to it. And then after we agreed on the organization, then I went and read each line of every chapter and just kind of reshaped it if it was necessary. If something didn't make sense, I asked questions. Okay. Um, so it's a more intensive form of editing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then I actually send it to a different copy editor. So I see. So yeah. also related to the clarification of terminology here, you mentioned mm -hmm. speculative fiction and science fiction. Are these two terms interchangeable terms? Uh, is one wider than the other? What defines science fiction as a genre in terms of language and subject matter? So much has been written <laughs> about all of these. Um, if you just look up science fiction or speculative fiction or fantasy in in a place like the science fiction encyclopedia it, it's pages and pages and pages so it's it changes you know as as the as languages change mm -hmm. and evolve and it, it used to be in the kind of early 20th century writers like robert heinlein and judith merrill were using speculative fiction to describe almost a subset of science fiction to focus more on away from the science and to and to put a spotlight more on kind of sociological change you know it didn't have to be at, it was kind of like trying to divorce some stories from the rigor of of science fiction like we think hg wells and science fiction but you know, if he, he's not really going into the science sometimes, and so what are you going to call it? So they were kind of using the speculative fiction for that. So speculative fiction is kind of further away from the science of science fiction. It kind of de-emphasizes that, mm -hmm. and it is more interested in in the sociological kind of conception of that. So stories that talk about uh, maybe scientific change, but don't talk about the actual science or formula behind it. You know, some people just aren't going to go into that. So speculative fiction became a space for stories like that. And uh, in more recent times, Ursula Le Guin and Margaret Atwood have also used the term. And, and it's it started to shift such that when I started hearing it, to me, it it was like an umbrella term, and it had become the the wider term under which, okay. yeah, under which science fiction, fantasy, horror, magical realism, the weird, and then in Italy they have uh, fantascienza, and in Eastern Europe it's fantastica. None of those are exactly the same because mm -hmm. they're all very rooted in their specific cultures. So speculative fiction, or some people even just call it uh, fantastic fiction, seems to be at this moment the broadest umbrella. And that's 
what I chose because when I just looked for science fiction in translation, I wasn't finding a lot. But then when I broadened my scope to fantasy mm-hmm. and horror, then I, you know, and now surrealism, like surreal and weird and magical realism seem to be kind of on the rise. So what kinds of markets are open for, for this genre? Well, the there are a few major science fiction magazines in in the U.S. and the U.K. that um, seem to dominate, like Clark's World, Fantasy and Science Fiction, Apex, Lightspeed. It there, you know, there there are a bunch, and then there are you know a ton more that have proliferated because of the internet. There seems to be a general openness to speculative fiction that maybe didn't exist, at least from my perspective in the United States, even 20 years ago, such that um, you're finding world literature today, which is, you know, literary translation, publishing an entire issue a couple issues ago on speculative world fiction. They just published my translation of a short story. Thank you. (laughs) A very short kind of surrealist science fiction piece by Clelia Ferris, it continues to show that people are are willing to accept this. This is no longer, you know, oh, you know, science fiction is, you know, for those for people over there or for kids or something. It's it's much more mainstream in the US and it's and even Words Without Borders just published Italian speculative microfiction. And they're really excited to to do that. So it, the markets seem to be to be oh, open. I see. It's it's just a question of a lot of times I think if you're going to get paid for it, and some places pay and some places don't, and that's a whole other <laughs> can of worms. Well, I want to uh, move to the challenges of translation, uh, particularly translating this genre. So, in your view, as a translator, what are some of the particular linguistic and cultural challenges that might be unique to translating speculative fiction slash science fiction? So this is a really good question because I've gone on to to Facebook and Twitter where I know a lot of uh, translators and I've said, I can't think of a specific kind of challenge to translating speculative fiction, but I feel like there is. Um, what do you guys think? And I, I got so many responses from from these translators who were saying, you know, you would think there would be a lot, but it's it's really kind of it's similar to translating any fictional text. You know, you, you have to think about the the tone and and the voice and everything. But there is, you know, one very kind of glaring thing, which is the use of the neologism. So coining new new yeah. terminology, new words, yes. Coining coining a new word, whether in the source language or in the target language because you're trying to you're trying to translate a word that doesn't exist in the target language. And a lot of times it has to do with uh, some sort of technology or some sort of kind of fantastic uh, imagery or material. And there's a really good essay in Asymptote a couple years ago called Portrait of the Translator as a Neologist by Alexander Dicko. I like the title. <laughs> it's great. And he goes it's a it's a really great essay because he goes into real like specifics, very like detailed about what he had to do to translate certain French words that themselves were 
were neologisms that he then had to find, you know, the equivalent or some sort of equivalent in English. And he actually says that trying to get closer and closer to a literal translation is actually counterintuitive. You need to actually move away from a more literal translation to kind of get a, a general sense of what the author was trying to say. And he said he spent hours and hours on Skype and an email discussing it with, with the author, all of that just for, for one word that was central. So he couldn't just, you know, say, okay, I'll translate that word and move on. It was, it was central to the story. And I've come across this a little bit in, in my own translation. The, Do you have any examples? Yeah. So there's a story, um, the story from Clelia that's in um, Future Science Fiction Digest uh, called The Substance of Ideas. We went back and forth about the, about the title, about a lot of these words where the story itself is, it's a, it's like slightly shifted. You're not sure when it takes place. You're not sure where it takes place. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very unclear. Um, and so because you don't have that context, you're not sure what the technology is. Right. So, or at least I wasn't sure. So at one point she wrote that, uh, this one man was getting into his, in Italian, it's, uh, Guccio Volante. And it's, literally a flying pod but i didn't know what she i was I, I wasn't sure if she meant like a like a helicopter or a pod or you know what kind of pod or whatever right. it went back and forth and back and forth and and she said well i'm kind of like a, a you know a helipod helicopter ish type and i said helipod sounds good <laughs> you know it, it's also helipod works because it's it's kind of vague, so we're still not sure what right. what universe this is, but but it's recognizable as a not a helicopter, you know. Something, easy something to pronounce different. too. It's off right, the time, you know? yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and related to this is the uh, the concept of the novum, so a neologism, new new speech, but novum is a new thing, which has been advanced by uh, science fiction theorists like uh, Darko Suvin, who explained that a novum is kind of, it's this new, it's a novelty and something like time travel or alien invasion or, or even some sort of alternate world within a world that, that changes how humans are interacting with each other or how the, how the characters are at, interacting with each other and you need new vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And so speculative fiction really encourages that kind of searching for new language on both sides, you know, on, in the source language and the target language. And a lot of it, I think, is done through discussion with the author. Yeah, it's great when you have that opportunity, of course. You know, yeah. I shouldn't be surprised because, of course, uh, science fiction or speculative fiction is known not just for neologism, but also inventing new languages sometimes right in, in yeah. some novels you find uh, uh, a new language that the author is inventing for a particular purpose right yeah that's that's a very good point um i remember reading this cuban science fiction author yos uh who has been brought into english kind of quickly uh within within the past few years a, a bunch of his novels um have been translated by 
David Fry, and one of the books is about giant alien amoeba-like creatures, and the the whole tone is very comic. It's it's a little you know you're you're thinking giant amoeba creatures you would think would would be terrifying, but it's actually a pretty funny novel, and the the narrator speaks in a kind of slangy English, and I was reading an interview with the author, I'm sorry, with the translator, who was saying that he had to work, he was working very closely with the author to try to capture what that would be, because it was written in Spanish, but in a different kind of Spanish, you know, it's so how, how do you translate slang is, is something I haven't come across in my own translation, but translating slang that can definitely that can be a challenge that I know a lot of translators have um, have successfully navigated. So they'd probably be able to answer that better than me. No, I think you have given us uh, great uh, thoughts about uh, this issue here. I want to move from the specific to the general, so away from neologisms and the specific challenges in translating science fiction or speculative fiction. Do you have a general philosophy of translation, or is this something that, in your view, is not necessary for a translator to have? Well, I started translating after I had already done a lot of listening to to people talk about translation and reading uh, any any kind of articles about, about people's approaches to translation and listening to your podcast as you've gone, uh, as you and Joseph have gone back and forth discussing translation and how how people conceive of it as you know is it its own thing is it derivative is it you know what is it and i tend to subscribe to the view that i guess is kind of in in the middle which is that you know a text there's the text that was written in the language and then there is the translation of the text which grows out of that original text but is itself its own creation. That's why I'm constantly advocating for people putting the translator's name on the cover of the book underneath the (laughs) underneath the uh, the author because you know it I I say and a lot of a lot of people say that that texts do not translate themselves. I also have been trying and I failed so far and I'm very frustrated about this, um, but I've tried to come up with a kind of a, a philosophy of translating speculative fiction based on some a lot of the similarities that what speculative fiction does and what translation does. And I've found a lot of essays and, and just kind of interviews and people talking about translation. They talk about it using metaphors that come straight out of speculative fiction. So translation as zombification, as and ghosts, afterlife, copies, and you know, speculative fiction is also in- incredibly interested in gom- zombies, ghosts, afterlife, oh, clones. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I was trying to think of of some way of kind of formulating this as trans- speculative fiction and translation, and then translated speculative fiction. And so far, my brain has not gotten to that point yet. But um, they seem to both do very similar things: crossing boundaries crossing borders and moving between them. And I'm, I'm interested in, in continuing to think about that and to talk to people about it and see if we can come up with some sort of philosophy about it. Great. You know, it's funny that you said that because we are currently in the process of planning for an episode about 
metaphors in translations, metaphors that translators live by. Yeah. Translators almost always seem to seem unable to talk about their work without invoking some kind of metaphor. I haven't seen the zombification one, but I will look for that. And, yeah, uh, I don't remember where that's <laughs> from. I do. I did just see one about translation as transmigration, which I found fascinating. I like that one too. Well, so I have learned a lot from your website, sciencefictiontranslation.com, and uh, you talk quite a bit about the surge in translated science fiction that has been going on in recent years, especially from non-Western languages. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and do you see that as a good thing? Are there downsides to this increased popularity? Where do you see the future of speculative fiction? Well, I, you know, from these lists, just from just from making all of these lists, I've, you know, I've seen the trends that have happened. And I'm mostly looking since the Cold War, because that's when it really started. So which speculative fiction gets translated does seem to be driven uh, by geopolitical shifts. So the 1960s and 70s was the height of the Cold War. You couldn't walk anywhere without running into Soviet SF in translation. It was everywhere. Then later, so go a couple decades ahead in the U.S. invasion of Iraq and then the Arab Spring, and now we're seeing more Arabic speculative fiction and translation and concurrently with China's uh, growing power and influence, we're seeing a large amount of Chinese SF in translation with Chinese. That's in part because of the um, money that the Chinese government is using to fund this kind of broadening out of uh, Chinese SF into the world. So a lot of this has to do with funding and with with who's available um, on the American side or the UK side uh, t- to accept this fiction and then distribute it. So there's a connection between the Chinese company Storycom and the U.S. Uh, magazine Clark's World. They have an agreement, so Clark's World publishes Chinese SF um, mm-hmm. every issue. So you're kind of seeing how that how that is playing out. But there's also there's also the fact that I think. SF in translation has been especially popular, I guess, for the past 15 years. And I think a a huge reason is the interconnectivity, the Internet, uh, allowing translators and authors to work together in real time, the expansion of the market of SF magazines. And they're all very interested in in translations because – non-Western or non-Anglophone stories are going to be different than just in maybe in tone or maybe in structure or in pacing or in the things that it's interested in than than what you see in, you know, maybe traditional Western Anglophone stories. So, But do you are, see like specific cultural aspects in, in this genre of, of fiction? I, mean, I asked you about the linguistic and cultural challenges. Yeah. I mean, one would think that maybe cultural aspects are more muted or subdued. That's a really, really <laughs> good question. Um, and it's, it's something that comes that comes up a lot. That does speculative fiction in translation, is it flattening cultures? You know, is it, or the way we see cultures, are we saying, oh, well, look, you know, J- Japanese SF is the same as whatever. But for instance, 
you know, Japanese SF developed after World War II, mm-hmm. uh, directly drawing on U.S. science fiction and U.K. science fiction. And then and there's a whole essay about this by a, a Japanese SF scholar. And he says that the Japanese SF writers, there was the first kind of wave, and then there was the second wave and the next wave or generation. And they started changing it in accordance with uh, what Japan was going through with economic expansion and coming back onto the world stage such that we have novels now from Japan where, yes, they're talking about hyperdrive and they're talking about exploration of other planets, which is not necessarily culturally specific, but they're naming things with Japanese names. They're using Japanese mythology. They're they're folding in, and it's fascinating to see, but then there's always the problem of does an American reader know what that context is? Probably not. So how does the translator bring that forward? Um, Ken Liu talks a lot about this in his translations of Chinese SF. Where do you write an endnote? You know, where do you include an endnote? Where do you just let it be? Because you don't want to keep interrupting the the story. But one thing I found particularly interesting uh, recently is that uh, I read back-to-back a novel from China and a novel from Argentina, and they're both trying to think about future connections between the artificial and the biological, or how does an artificial virus become a biological virus? How does an artificial, you know, like a a robot connect with a human and, and what happens with that connection? And, you know, these are written, you know, on opposite sides of the globe, one by a man, one by a woman, mm-hmm. one speaking Chinese, one speaking Spanish. And I found that really interesting that they're both uh, they're written around the same time, and then they were both published in the same year in English, both thinking about the same issues, but from totally different cultural contexts. And I find this more and more. I found some stories from Israel and Japan that talked about the same issues, but in their own context. So I think the best speculative fiction is the kind that teaches us about the culture from which it comes, but also is general enough that just like, you know, any great literature that we can all, we can understand it, we can relate to it, we can see what it, what it's trying to tell us, but we understand that it's coming from a perspective that's not ours. Okay. You know, you actually anticipated my last question. I was going to ask you to make a case to those of us who are not yet initiated into science fiction and translation. Why should we read more science fiction and translation? But I think you answered it very well. (laughs) My last question is, for those of us who don't know much about science fiction and translation, what book do you recommend as an entry point? Besides your own translation, of course. (laughs) Uh, I would be kind of obnoxious and turn the question back and say, well... What kind of speculative fiction do you like? You know, so if you like if you like science fiction, I would definitely say that you need to go out and you need to get all three books in Liu Cixin's Three Body Trilogy. So it's The Three Body Problem, The Dark Forest, and Death's End. The Three Body Problem won the Hugo Award a few years ago, which is the biggest SF award and it is outrageous i mean they're talking about 10 dimensional space and i don't I, you know i didn't even understand physics but i love <laughs> this book i love these books so much so that's science fiction if you're looking for 
are kind of more speculative. So maybe, you know, soft sci-fi, they sometimes call it. One of my favorites is a book from Spanish from the Dominican Republic called Wicked Weeds. Mm-hmm. And it's subtitled A Zombie Novel. And so people are like, I'm not reading a zombie novel. It's about zombies, but it's not about zombies. And it it is a wild ride. It's a lot about human psychology and strange uh, plants and pharmaceutical companies. And, and it's uh, it's by Pedro Cabilla, translated by uh, Jessica Powell. And it's fantastic. And if you're interested in fantasy, I don't read a lot of fantasy myself. I do tend to um, lean toward the hard SF, but there are a lot of series. So a very popular one is the Witcher series from Poland. It has a lot of different incarnations. You can read some Lena Crone if you're interested in kind of Finnish, not quite horror, but not quite fantasy. These are great recommendations. This has been a wonderful interview, and I wish you all the best and uh, look forward to reading more of your translation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. This has been On Translation. Visit us at ontranslation.org and follow the podcast at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play.